Well, hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blanc. I am super excited that you're here. If you're watching this on YouTube, then it's a great way to provide comments uh, for us, and our team and I are looking and answering your questions. If you're on, if you're on iTunes, your podcast, it's a fantastic way to take us on the road or at home. And so thank you so much for following us on both of these mediums here. Today, I have a fantastic show for you guys because, uh, you know, the most popular shows are the ones where people quit their jobs with apartment buildings. And, and today we have a guest who is unbelievable, Kyle Marcotte. He actually quit college when he was 20 because he had already done two multifamily deals. It is unbelievable. This guy literally t- has taken every single objection I've ever heard of off the table I don't have enough experience. I don't have any money. I'm too young. I don't know enough. And he figured out how to do two deals in college. When he was 20 years old, he quit his job. This is probably one of the most incredible stories I've ever had on the podcast. So it is unbelievably inspiring to hear Kyle talk about his journey and what he has done and what he's going to do. I mean, it is really, really outstanding. But right before we get in the, in, the, in the interview, I did want to tell you that we did go virtual. That's right. Virtual Dealmaker Live, our annual conference, which, of course, uh, we had to cancel, which is really unfortunate. But that's okay. We pivoted right away and preserved all of our unbelievable speakers that we have. And we're going to go virtual. And it's going to be really cool. We have some really cool technology that's actually going to make it really fun. We're going to have some pretty amazing networking opportunities online that I'm really excited about. So check it out at dealmakerliveevent.com. We still have several weeks away from uh, from having that event, but it's going to be pretty awesome. Dealmakerliveevent.com is the website. All right, let's get right into the show here with Kyle Marcotte. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. Hey, dude, this is pretty cool. Kyle, how old are you? 21 years old. Yeah, okay. So you're 21 years old, and you basically are full-time, uh, real, a full-time multifamily real estate investor. Is that right? Yes, that is right. When, when did that happen exactly? How many years ago? Um, when I was 20, that, that's when that fully happened. Interesting. All right. So you told me before that you actually dropped out of college to pursue this full-time. Is that right? Uh, yes, I did. That's pretty cool, Kyle. That actually, that makes you the youngest person that I know of uh, that has been financially free with uh, with real estate, which is pretty cool. So now I just I gotta know how did this happen? All right, so so you know, rewind not too far ago. Sometimes we gotta rewind the clock ten, whatever, fifteen years with you. How did you get started with real estate? Um, so I was a student at UC Davis. I was studying pre med and playing Division One soccer there, and. Uh, you know, I was having a lot of fun, but the thing was, I didn't control my time in any way. You know, you're giving your time to your teachers and your coaches and, you know, you're just feeling like kind of a slave to the activities that you're a part of instead of being able to kind of control your life and to set some sort of a course for yourself because I've always really had a vision for a future that I wanted for my life and for my family. And I just didn't see it happening um, on the route that I was on, even though that was perceived as a successful route for most people. Um, you know, going to the four-year university and getting your, you know, your medical, uh, your MD and, and being all a doctor and parents being proud and, you know, playing division one sports and et cetera. But I just, it wasn't for me, you know, and I had to listen to my heart. And after I read a book, rich dad, poor dad, my sophomore year, uh, I started to realize that there was actually a way to control my time. Like I had been kind of curious about, but I never really had the means to do so. And that book kind of told me about real estate. It told me about passive income and uh, making money independent of your time. 
and I really dove into it like obsessively. I read about it pretty much every day from about 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. I would go to bed and I'd be mad that I had to stop reading and stop learning and stop listening to podcasts. I actually listen to this one quite a bit, so I'm super, super excited to actually be here now, which is crazy. But yeah, I just was so obsessed with the concept of real estate. I started in wholesaling, uh, but then I realized that that was another job. I was you know, having to give my time in exchange for money, which I didn't necessarily want to be doing. Um, so I found Jake and Gino and they taught me about multifamily real estate and how you can get to scale pretty quickly. Once you get over that 75 unit mark, you can hire someone full time. Uh, the income of the property is going to support that. And you're going to be able to be independent of your time, basically spend like two hours a week on a call with them talking about vacancy and budget. And you'll be able to actually go enjoy your life and spend time with your family and, and do the things you're really passionate about. So that sounded like a home run to me. And once I knew that it was possible and I had a route, I just basically devoted my entire life to it and uh, did two deals, 107 unit in Louisville and 12 in Atlanta. And uh, now I'm here today. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's a great way to summarize everything. Now we're going to get a little deeper, Kyle, because you know I remember when I was a sophomore or whatever in college, I wasn't reading Rich Dad Poor Dad. Now, and at the time, it wasn't out yet in my defense, but <laughs> but I I wasn't thinking too far into the future, my friend. I was I was learning the uh, the the skill of marketing and sales to throw parties, which I got somewhat good at, you know. And I was playing uh, competitive tennis at the time, also, and I was not thinking of family and controlling my time. What is wrong with you? Where does that come from? Why are you thinking kind of more strategically? I'll tell you, most people don't discover, they don't start waking up to the fact that they can't live like this until they're probably in their mid-30s, around 40, because they've worked 15, 20 years. And like, that was kind of a grind. I got another 20 years ahead of me. No, thank you. Is there another solution? And then people kind of go, oh, maybe I should look into real estate. Now, what in the world made you start looking around going, I can't continue living like this. I can't continue playing soccer and having a good time. You know, where does that, where does that come from? <laughs> yeah, so I guess that, you know, people always say that entrepreneurs are bad employees, right? And I think that I'm just the worst employee and student that there was and uh, also teammate as well. Unfortunately, it's definitely a flaw of mine. I don't take direction well and uh, I uh, that's an issue, but I'm using it as a strength and trying to be my own like boss and leader and help other people and be... Um, more in the boss role. And I've found that that's just more successful for me. So I wouldn't say that I'm special or that I have a unique perspective or something like that. I think I was just really bad at the traditional route. And I was almost forced to do the untraditional because of the fact that, you know, I just did, I could, it was pretty evident that it wasn't going to work out long-term based on just my personality and my makeup, uh, you know, going to class, clocking in, doing a set thing and not having an explanation as to why we're doing it just to do it because we're telling you to, that was something that I just never from a young age was able to really accept. So I think, you know, I always been upset with the school system and always been upset with the traditional route. And, um, I guess it just, I, I reached my breaking point a little bit earlier than most people, I guess. Yeah. What was your breaking point, Kyle? Um, so to be really specific, it was actually, I came back from a soccer practice. We had, been doing two days in the summer. And uh, I just was dreading going back to, you know, chemistry and calculus and some of the uh, like undergrad medical classes that are just ridiculously difficult, especially at UC Davis, which is one of the better schools in the country, especially for, you know, science and STEM majors like that. So just going back to organic chemistry, regular chemistry, calculus, physics, I just was like, there's no way I can do this. I was just in the shower after practice. I remember I had my head on the wall and I was just like, man, there's no way I can move forward and continue to be happy, like be happy in any sense. And I really value happiness and um, passion. Like, like that's something that's always driven my life. I played soccer from a young age and pursued my passion. I didn't 
necessarily do as well in high school as I probably should have. I definitely was able to get into UC Davis more on the soccer rather than the school. And I wish that I spent more time on school. But the thing was, I just, I've always been someone who follows their heart and their passion. And soccer was that for me. And I just, it started to become not fun anymore. And I was like, I'm not used to living in a state of, you know, not following something that I really like. So I got to go and and find something new. And thank God that I found uh, that book when I did. And it just all kind of came together. A lot of us, including myself, didn't discover that they were entrepreneurs until much later in life. I think I was in my mid-30s when I discovered I was actually an entrepreneur. At one point, did you realize that you had more of an entrepreneurial bent? I'm probably just showing up to class every day and and always trying to think of ways that I could be doing the class better, ways that I could be um, engaging the students more and how I would present the information in a different way, in a different light. And I was never just taking in anything. I was always observing and kind of having a perspective on it of how can I be a better leader than this teacher currently? Like, what are they doing that's not inspiring these kids? Because I'm, I'm seeing them drone on in a monotone way and provide boring information with in the same set. And I'm sitting there being like, okay, I have dyslexia and I don't learn in a traditional way. And I wish that the teacher knew that, you know, not everyone in this room is going to learn the same way. And I wish they could address the class and sections and have a different approach. And I was just always like thinking about how to run things better. And I never was really just able to drop into the system, especially with coaching um, and soccer. I'd always been, I had a certain perspective on how the team should play. And and at times that didn't gel with the coaches. And and there was often times where there was conflict there. And, uh, you know, I just was never able to really set into a role without an explanation as to why I was always trying to figure out the best way to do things. So I guess kind of naturally just figured, hey, man, I'm going to give myself a shot and bet on myself and see if I can find the best way to do this real estate thing and, uh, and, and if it can work for me. And I just kind of pursued that. So you, you read Rich Dad Poor Dad and you're like, man, this is something I can do for myself. And I don't have to really clock in for anyone. I don't have to show for class. I don't have to show for unless I want to. And um, what was your initial plan uh, for real estate? It sounds like your initial plan was wholesaling. Uh, did you take any action towards that initial plan or what did you do early on? Yeah. So my initial plan was wholesaling. I actually started biking around, finding properties in a local area that were distressed and ended up doing a couple of deals. That's actually how I paid my way into the education program. From there, then my plan was, you know, house hack a duplex, you know, maybe just keep it taking it slow. But then I started to realize, you know, as you learn more about the industry, you see that, you know, the duplex is probably only going to cash somewhere around like 100 to 300 uh, bucks a month cash flow, And then maybe a thousand if you're like a home run deal. But the thing is, you don't have enough income to really support a full-time manager. And they're usually going to be a single family home. It's not going to be as sophisticated. There's not going to be cloud-based accounting software that updates live. It's not going to be um, really that autonomous. It's going to be, you know, your time and you're really going to be there being the landlord. And that was, that just completely was against my whole mission. Cause my mission was not to become this um, Ferrari driving millionaire it was to become someone who could spend more time with their family, be financially free and time freedom. So I realized like, although yeah, sure, maybe I can make a lot of money in single family in the long term. It's not going to be independent of my time. And that's the whole point. Because if I didn't care about, if I just cared about money and not the time, I would have stayed and been a doctor. Doctors make a bunch of money. Yeah. But the thing is, they don't really have that much freedom. They have to be on call. And uh, it was all about freedom for me. And multifamily just seemed like the most free route as far as time was concerned. So that's what I pursued. Now you talked about spending time with family, but you don't have family right now, do you? Uh, my parents. Yeah. I love my parents. I have a great relationship with them that's and great. Uh, my brother as well. So that's something I'm really proud of is just uh, the relationship I have with my family, uh, my parents. So really excited about that. So what does financial freedom mean to you right now? Financial freedom to me just means being able to replace my expenses on a monthly basis and pay for my lifestyle with cash flow or with um, you know residual income from investments. And yeah, and be able to kind of control what my day looks like. If I want to come on a podcast at noon and I can, I don't have to be, you know, taking my lunch break to do it or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is an important point. 
what does financial freedom to mean to anyone watching or listening to this? And it's a very personal thing. What are you doing with your, with your free time right now? Right now, I'm trying to build a, a personal brand on Instagram and, and social media in general so that I can get more passive investors for these syndications. Um, because you know I've done two so far, but the thing is, you got to have as big of an investor base as you can have so that you can do more deals and you can help more people get to a financial freedom level in their life. Because that's the whole goal, right? Is to help these passive investors uh, get to a point where they can also retire from the passive income. So it's educating people online and trying to become an expert and convince people to invest with a 21 year old, which is definitely difficult, but uh, you know, finding ways around it by just trying to be as well-educated as I can be and, and come on things like this and educate people. So. So there's many challenges uh, sometimes getting into this business and some are challenges and some are excuses. Uh, one of the excuses that I, I hear often is I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too this, I'm too that. And um, how did you, as a 20-year-old at the time, uh, how were you successful at getting a first deal done? How were you successful in convincing a broker that they should actually take you seriously? How did you get into that first deal? Yeah. So I think that the whole age thing is a great point. And I think that a lot of people struggle with this and they actually forget that your age can be your biggest asset. So for me being 20, when I would go to these conferences, everyone noticed me because I was 20. Everyone in there is 30 to 40 years old. So it ended up becoming a huge strength for me. Um, as far as brokers are concerned, I have a email strategy that I email them on a biweekly basis on a spreadsheet. And I make sure that those are going out automatically. And I have a good CRM that tell me what you know, their personal information is, their family's names, their kids' sporting events that I can comment on and things like that. So they didn't really even have to ask my age until I had already built a decent relationship with them. So the broker aspect was slightly easier, but the investor relationship, people have to see you face-to-face -face in order to make an investment with you and they have to know who you are and they ask you questions such as, have you done this before? And, and obviously the answer for me is no and there's no getting around that. So I had to own that and, and be honest, tell them where I was because there's no... I'm telling someone that you've done a deal when you look the way that I look, right? I, I clearly look 20 years old. Um, and so I'd have to tell them honestly that, you know, this is not something that I've done before, but it's something that I'm dedicated to. I've dropped out of school. I've left soccer behind. I've, I've completely burned the boats. This is all I do. This is what I'm focused on. And then I'm going to work a lot harder than anyone else because my back's against the wall. Um, and this is all that I got. And I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to leave early. I'm going to make sure that, that your money's safe and I'm going to work harder than anyone else. So that was kind of my pitch to get around the the age aspect. That's cool. So you 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 sold them on your on your grit essentially. Anything else? Any other tools that you use to convince your investors to invest with you? Um. Yeah. I'll try. I'll typically. I have a pretty decent deal pitch deck that I have on my website that um, I think tries to walk people through the investment uh, process in a simple way because I'm not really trying to overcomplicate things. I've seen a lot of pitch decks that can get a little bit too into the weeds, and I think that a lot of people just want to know. Um, the basics. And also they want to know, you know, what is the market going to look like? How is my deal going to be safe in the long term? What's the worst case situation? And what's the best case situation? So providing some sort of a sensitivity table um, as far as exit cap rates concerned and just um, overall scenarios in general. So I try to provide a lot of different scenarios so that people can see these in a story format too, so that it's not just, you know, numbers on a, on a chart or a table. Cause I feel like, you know, a lot of people are very sophisticated investors, but sometimes passive investors are just wealthy W2s who want um, you know, to have some residual income and they are not necessarily going to spend the time to understand what IRR is, to understand what a reversion cap rate is and using all these words that they may not understand. And also these tables that just look like chicken scratch to them at a, at a glance and they're going to have to take a whole course just to know what you're saying. So I try to put it in a story form and I'll try to put the worst case scenario in, in common English rather than all these different, you know, sensitivity 
kind of statements like, oh, well, cash flow is going to decrease 30% on year one. And it's like, well, no, let's just say, you know, 30% of people move out and, and this happens and, and the market, the, the jobs stop coming to Austin and, and yada, yada. You know, I'll try to put it in a story form so that people can understand it regardless of, of their background. All right. A few things I'm, I'm hearing here, hearing you say, number, number one is you sold them on grit. So that's, that's great. But number two, you keep bringing up story. And that's really important. At one of our events called the Financial Freedom Summit, which we do once a year, we have like the Shark Tank thing where people can pitch a deal, not a live deal, but a deal to the sharks. And the thing that they always say is, what's the story? What's the story? Because so many people will go out and they'll talk about IRR and returns and cash on cash. And no one really cares. They want it's the story that sells. So stories is really, really important. Number two, what I heard you say is got to keep it simple. And I, I love that. I love that. And number three, and implicitly what you're saying is you sounded like you know what, we're, what you were talking about. And you were educating a person. And even though you're young, it's clear talking to you when an investor talks to you that you know what you're talking about. You may not have experience, but at a minimum, you have academic knowledge at a minimum, right? And so mm -hmm. you put all this together and, and, and an investor might go, yeah, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll take a shot on them. You know, not everybody. <laughs> you know, there's going to be a lot of investors who are going to go, and this is why the first deal is so hard to do. They'll go, ah, you know, I'm just going to wait till you do your first deal, right? So there's going to be some that are going to be on the fence. And I'm sure you encountered some of those, but it sounds like you convinced a few of them at least to invest in your first deal. So let's talk about your first deal. How'd you find it? Where was it? How big was it? Let's get into that a little bit. Yeah. So it was in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was a 107 unit deal. Um, we found the deal based on a broker connection. I actually met a partner in the Jake and Gino group named Eli who got the deal from a broker and then we decided to work on it together. He did a lot of the analytics um, and I did a lot of the capital raising. Uh, we, we worked in the business plan together and kind of came together there, but he definitely had his role and I had mine. And the beautiful thing about the deal was we actually bought it thinking it was 106, but they had a downed unit that we ended up finding that just needed to be cleaned up. So that added a bunch of NOI day one. And then we also had a huge payroll expense that we were able to cut because they actually had a relative being the onsite manager and he was being paid almost double the market rate. So we were able to cut that in half on day one as well. So it was really just like a very simple home run deal. And the story was easy to tell investors. And also, you know, it's, it's not every day that you buy 107 unit building thinking 106 and you end up, you know, making a whole another unit out of it. It's kind of a, a easy to wrap your head around value add play. Yeah, that's kind of fun. So what was the purchase price and how much did you have to raise? So it was a $4.55 million purchase price. And we had to raise a little bit north of 1 million. I myself raised just a little bit over 600,000 for that deal. That's great. And um, how many investors did you talk to to raise that much? Give us an idea. So I got told no by so many investors. You know, I, I was a speaker at a local meetup. I eventually worked my way up there just by, you know, working to check in and doing some, you know, basic tasks around the meetup. And then finally asked for a speaking role um, as I kept adding value for months um, and that actually led me to get a bunch of meetups for coffee and lunch after those meetups because people would see you on stage with a mic. It immediately makes you an expert in the space, even no matter how much, how young you look or how weird you look, you know, you just, you have a mic, you're on stage and you're immediately important. You're immediately an expert. So that got me a bunch of meetings. I would have, you know, almost five meetings after every meetup with people and I'd get so many no's. I probably got a hundred no's um, and I ended up having... I ended up having uh, three or four guys invest with me. So the main investor, Lalo, who I met at the meetup early on, he introduced me to a couple of his work friends and then a buddy of his from his uh, past life that also helped invest with us quite a bit. So it was just a really beautiful thing where you keep working, keep working and nothing seems like it's going right. You've been said no to for 
like several weeks in a row, just so many no's in meetings. Because like you said, I mean, to take an investment on a 20 year old kid, I mean, the easy out is just, let me hold up when you're 25, we'll do a deal. Or when you do your first deal, we'll do a deal. I mean, that's such an easy out. And honestly, the risk is so asymmetrical for them because it's like, you know, you lose, I lose the money and they have to tell their wife like, oh yeah, I thought this 20 year old kid was going to kill it. And he didn't, you know what I mean? The wife's going to be like, you idiot, you get, you know what I mean? So it's, it's definitely like a huge faith play. And that's something that I'm forever grateful for. It's just like, I know that it wasn't all me doing this. There was some faith involved um, for sure for someone to take the leap with me. And, and thankfully it's gone very well for them, but you know, it's before they hadn't, they had no idea. And it's just like, it's so, I'm just so blessed for them to have taken that chance with so, me. So, but take, check it out. First of all, you said you got like a hundred no's. Like, so you are talking to everybody and everybody and you get hearing no and you're hearing no and you're hearing no. Why do you keep going? I mean, it sounds like you're kind of a slow learner. <laughs> yeah. So I kept going because, you know, I burned the boats. I, I had no other option, right? I, I had told myself that this was what I was going to do. I had identified myself as an investor in my mind. I had spent a lot of time telling myself, affirming to myself that this was what I was going to do and this was who I was and that I could make this happen. And, um, you know, no matter what happened around me, I just knew that inside that that's what I was going to be able to do and that, you know, real estate's a numbers game, man. If you say, if you say, if you ask the question to enough people, if you go and talk to enough people, eventually you're going to get someone to say yes. And that's what I liked about real estate. That's why I had so much confidence in it. Is it's the, one of the oldest industries, you know, land's been around before people. We've always kind of valued land and sold it to each other. And it's just a numbers game. The business works. People have made it work. People with less knowledge and more knowledge have made it work. And so it's like, I got to just put the work in. It's going to be an output thing and, and it will work out. I just have to commit. Yeah, I love that. And you just said the, the key word, which is commit, right? You're, you're committing to it. Uh, this is what Hal Elrod says in his book, The Miracle Equation. You got to commit to the outcome, not so much the time frame. My sense is you maybe you had a time frame in your mind. Maybe you did, right? But what if it took twice as long or three times as long? I, it doesn't. It strikes me like you wouldn't have cared how long it would take. Yeah, I, I really didn't, man. Because like I said, I just saw myself as that person already. So it really didn't matter what the time externally was because internally it had already happened. So it was just the external time was just kind of irrelevant at that point. It was just, I knew that it was going to happen, you know? Love it. Now, the other thing, important thing is it sounded like it was really one investor that made all the difference because that one investor bought into you, but he brought a bunch of other people who maybe brought a bunch of other people. Is that kind of how it worked? Yeah. So I had one guy who took the leap of faith and then he convinced people to take the leap of faith as well. So it was just, you know, it's a catalyst, right? But you, I had to get a hundred no's before I could get that one yes, but the one yes really snowballed. And I think that that's what people don't realize when they're raising capital is that it really only takes one to two people to really change your whole business. It really is. And in that way, he almost acted a little bit like a partner, right? Because this is mm -hmm. a sophisticated person with money and, you know, some kind of experience investing probably. And he saw something in you because I'm going to take a chance on this guy. And he almost acted like a, like a credibility partner, if you will. And so he brought it. Now, you brought him to his friends and acquaintances and, and they, looked at, they looked at you and like, well, and they looked at him going, well, if he already looked at it, right? So it's this power of, of almost partnering. I mean, it sound, he wasn't your normal, you know, passive investor. You know, he was a, a major influencer in the other ones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's pretty cool. And sometimes you, you, you're really only one relationship away from the next level. I mean, in my own experience as well, you go to a meetup. And you, you know, you're thinking one thing, I'm going to do an X deal, right? And then you meet someone who, you know, loves you and, and loves the idea of it, but he's got to place at least a million dollars. And you're like, crap, I was thinking of buying a 12 unit. This guy wants to place a million dollars. And all of a sudden your mind shifts. You're like, I got to find a bigger deal for this guy. And so a lot of times you're just simply a, a single relationship away from a whole new level. 
which is great. Now, what made you want to go for a larger deal to begin with, right? Another, you know, another belief is, hey, let me start a little smaller and I'll work myself into something bigger. And you're like, ah, screw that. Why did you decide to swing a little bit bigger? Yeah, because I guess I just done so much research and every time I did research, it would just come back as if you want to be over the 75 unit mark, because that's when you get the economies of scale. And that's where you can actually, again, own your time and have um, income independent of your time because of this high quality management staff that's going to be there on a daily basis. So as I kept doing research and realized like, okay, the acquisition phase of a bigger deal is going to be much harder, but the five to seven years of hold time is going to be way smoother than a smaller deal. I ended up doing a 12 unit second and I can now I can say that with full confidence and experience that yes, it was much easier to close on the 12 unit. The acquisition phase was much less headaches. We didn't have to do all the paperwork of the syndication. You know, it wasn't as crazy. It was easier to do as a joint venture. But the thing is with 107 unit, now I have a two hour phone call and we talk about set things and they've run 2000 units in the market. They know exactly how to do this 107 unit. With the 12 unit, we have a single family home property management company that this is their biggest deal. They don't have too much experience in commercial. They don't understand the NOI and cap rate model evaluation. They are more on comps and they just, we had to educate them, bring them up to speed and things just haven't been nearly as smooth. So I almost wish I didn't, I, you know, I almost wish I did another big deal. So it's, that's now all I'm focusing on is, is above 75 units. And, and yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's harder up front, but it's much easier throughout. Now, we kind of glossed over this uh, partner that you had in this first deal because if I recall the math right, you raised 600000 and this partner raised 400000 Talk to us about the nature of that joint venture, why you did it, and, and the result of that. Yeah, so the 107 unit was still a syndication. We had um, me and Eli being GPs, and Eli was bringing some money from his own personal connections as well and helping with the underwriting, and uh, and then I brought you know, the majority of the capital, but yeah, he still knew that he was going to have people who are going to be able to uh, bring capital. The person he brought in actually 1031 into the syndication, which ended up, you know, being a whole educational lesson and tenant and common agreements and things like that, yeah, which sure was. I was super not prepared for, but we ended up figuring it out. And, um, but yeah, we probably would have had me raise the rest of the capital, but he had a guy coming in 1031 and we knew that we could accommodate $400,000 really from one person. So we wanted to make sure that we could do that. But, you know, hence the tenant common agreement had to happen. And uh, that's a whole new ball game with paperwork and, and legality and, and risk. So we had to figure that out. But it's definitely a great lesson. So when you first partnered with him, though, uh, it, it sounds like he his first role, initial role was not to raise capital. It was more underwriting. Why did you partner with him in that way? What's well, you can't you can't do spreadsheets. What's the matter with you? No, I can definitely do spreadsheets and I'm definitely good at them. I just, it's not where I like to be. It's not my passion place. You know, I'm not, I don't feel like time flies by when I'm on spreadsheets, you know, and I, and Eli is an actuary by trade before real estate. So he was very much numbers, very much spreadsheet. And for me, I'm, I'm, I love to talk to people. I'll come on a show like this anytime and I'll just have conversations with people. So I figured, you know, and Eli, again, being a spreadsheet stud, he doesn't necessarily want to go and have these conversations. So for me, it was just kind of a great synergy where the thing I didn't really like to do, he didn't like to do, or he did like to do. And the thing that he didn't like to do, I did like to do. So that worked out really well. And like you said, he wasn't necessarily going to raise capital at the beginning, but then we had a relationship come in where he could 1031 and we decided that that would be uh, the quickest and best way to raise the rest of the capital. Now, what effect did that first deal have, that closing of the first deal? What effect did that have on everything you did after that? 
Well, definitely got the support of my family and my parents who uh, definitely were not supportive at the beginning because, you know, it was just, okay, you've dropped out. You have no deals. Can you even do this? What even is this? You know, are people aren't going to invest in you? All the objections that, you know, were going in their head and also going through my head and, and going through everyone who knew me at the time's head. And I was able to kind of silence those critics after that deal. And that really gave me a lot of, just gave me a more feeling of peace and ease. I was able to sleep more. You know, I wouldn't, I wasn't in this full grind survival mode. I was now I'm kind of in a more relaxed place. Like, okay, I can do this. Um, people now believe in me. I have some support. Um, and that actually led into the 12 unit deal really quickly. And now we're under contract on a 90 unit in Austin that with coronavirus is going to take a little bit longer to close, but I think we're still going to be able to do it. Um, so it's really just snowballed and uh, give me a lot of momentum as well. And what happened now? How's the conversation going with your investors now that you closed that first deal? Is it any different right now or is it about the same? Um, with new investors, it's definitely better because, you know, now that I've closed over 119 units, it's it seems like I'm kind of being pushed into a, almost like a, a phenom role, which is sometimes I would say maybe not necessarily true or whatever, but the optics of it look very good from a 20-year-old closing, you know, that many units. It definitely gives you a lot more credibility than a 20-year-old who's never done this before, right? So just the way that people perceive me on a new investor level is is definitely a lot easier for me. I get a lot less no's than I used to. I used to probably get like, yeah, like literally one yes for every hundred conversations. And now it's somewhere around like one yes for every 50 to 60 conversations. So it's definitely gotten a lot easier, but still not super easy because of my age, but it's definitely way, way easier. I love that. You, you know, you've definitely overcome a lot of challenges and you just persevered through it, which is pretty awesome. Now, what is your, what, what do you think is your biggest challenge right now? My biggest challenge right now would just be continuing to scale this business and to continue to get passive investors because, you know, deals happen a lot. And I think that with coronavirus and, you know, the market changing a little bit, I think deals are going to become more available. I want to close on as many as I can. I want to help as many people as I can invest in real estate. But the thing is, I have to converse, I have to have a conversation with them. I have to get in front of them. So right now, my biggest challenge is just obscurity, not people not knowing who I am and what I do. And so I try to get on social media. I try to come on podcasts. I'm trying to get people to understand, you know, what value I can add to them and uh, who I am in general so that they can, you know, if they want to take the leap of faith and, and so I can continue to grow this business. All right. So what's your plan right now to get the word out? So it's coming on podcasts. I've been on pretty much every podcast you can go on in real estate so far. This being the one that I'm the most nervous for. So that's, and I'm glad that I'm here, but I went on Joe Fairless. I went on uh, Rod Khalif and um, some other bigger ones. I, yeah, what else? Yeah. Some other big ones. And I'm just continuing to try to go on the podcast circuit because people listen to those on a big basis. And I feel like if people can hear my whole story and my personality, that maybe that'll help quite a bit. Um, a little bit more than maybe just a social media post, but I do post on LinkedIn. I try to post at least five to seven times a day on LinkedIn. And then I post a story on Instagram and Facebook five to seven times a day. And I post once a day on Instagram and twice a day on Facebook, like the actual post, not the story. So I'm really putting out the volume on social media, trying to get in front of people. Um, and then I'm coming on podcasts a lot as well. That's great. What are you posting? Um, so on LinkedIn, it's, it's, a, it's a different, like a, there's a barrage of posts. So the, the beginning of the day is always a daily definition in real estate. So I try to make sure that I can educate people on a consistent basis with a segment so that I know that every day, at least I'm educating people on some level. And then I have at the end of the day, a quote of the day, that's like a motivational quote to keep people in the mindset. And then in between there, I'll try to ask questions because um, especially on LinkedIn, it's a, it's a conversational platform. It's much less of like, a, hey, look at what I'm doing. It's more of, hey, did you hear about this? Do you want to talk about this? And let's connect. So all the uh, posts are question-based, trying to elicit responses so that I can, you know, get comments going and tag other people and kind of get build a conversation and it can spread across LinkedIn. Um, and then on Instagram, 
I'll post things like what I'm doing right now, being on your podcast, or I have my own podcast and I'll post some episodes of that or some clips of that. And then I'll on Facebook do the same thing. So Instagram and Facebook are more like, Hey, what I'm doing, but then LinkedIn's a lot more of a conversation. How are you capturing the listeners or watchers when you're doing these things? In other words, what's, what's, is, do you have any kind of call to action that got, that brings people into you once they see you in social media? Yeah. So if you look at my website, it's actually pretty similar to yours. Cause I heard you speak at the raising money summit in Colorado and you talked all about the Divi theme and I have your slides from the presentation. And I definitely went to town on, on building that website when I got home. And, um, so it's very similar to yours in the sense that it's Divi theme. And as soon as you get on the page, there's a call to action. It's to download one of my books. The book is um, how to raise capital. And immediately that sends you into a drip campaign on you know MailChimp. I know you use, you use active campaign, but I use MailChimp and it's the same concept of it's going to continue to move you through the education. And I have some free coaching calls just to talk about your goals and how to get started and things like that. And that's really popular with people from like 20 to 30 who are, you know, in college or in their first job and kind of unhappy. And they want to talk about, you know, the mindset of how to get out of it. And that's something that I've been having a lot of fun with is talking to kids my age and how to motivate them. So that's not really converting passive investors right now, but it's really, you know, making my heart expand a little bit. And I love to, to work in that space. So that's been a lot of fun, but I have all these educational resources on my website that uh, are like lead magnets, I guess. That's right. They're, they're lead magnets. That's kind of what, is, what I was, was asking about. So when someone you're shouting out on social media or you're putting out a video or a post or you're trying to have a conversation with someone LinkedIn, you said, hey, why don't you check out one of these, you know, free downloads? And that now send, enters your, 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 your automations and, and eventually will result in a call with you. Right. And then at that point, you can present them with, with deals. It's kind of, is that kind of how it works? Yes, exactly. Cool. All right. And how's that going? Uh, it's going pretty well. It's definitely going a lot better. I've, I've, especially with some of these podcasts, people are now coming into the funnel quite a bit. Um, I did a live stream with a guy on Instagram the other day, um, and it actually doubled my following on Instagram. So then that's put a bunch of people to download some of the resources. And I have, um, you can actually buy like my pitch deck that I was talking about earlier, and it's like nine bucks. So I had a couple of people buy that as well, just because it's not that much money. So they were they were okay to buy it. And then I have, you know, a lot of downloads and people have joined my, my freedom club, which is like my Facebook group. And we talk about financial freedom and time freedom. And, uh, and it, there's also some promos there where you can get like more coaching opportunities for free and, uh, and just network with people as well. So just trying to build up, you know, kind of like a platform an education platform where people know what they're getting when they come to my website, they're getting talking about time freedom. They're not going to get the jets, the planes, the cars, they're going to get the guy who wants to spend more time with his family and have more freedom in his life. Yeah. So true. How do you, how do you plan on helping you know, younger people like, like you, you said they don't necessarily convert to past investors, but how, how do you think you can serve them? Um, just continue to inspire them to take action and realize that the prescribed path doesn't have to be what you do. If something's telling you something in your heart right now to go pursue something, you have a lot more fun doing something else, but people think it's stupid or it doesn't make a lot of money or yada, yada, yada. It has nothing to do with how much money you're going to make. It has everything to do with how much you're going to enjoy doing it. And of course, multifamily real estate is a more lucrative path. But like, for example, if you like to, you know, I know Gary Vee always uses this example. It's like, if you want to talk about Ninja Turtles on a podcast, it's 2020, you literally can, and you can make 60, $70,000 a year doing that. And then you're happy. You're way more happy doing that every day than you would ever be, you know, being a, a mortgage broker or being a, a banking guy or something like that and just clocking in and clocking out. So I know a lot of people have that same angst that I had where it's like, man, I really don't want to do this, but I, is there any other option? And then when they hear my story, they go, okay, there's, we can do something else. And that's kind of what Rich Dad Poor Dad did for me was that I want to be like that catalyst for other people where they see, okay, there is a different way to do this. I don't have to keep going down this path. I mean, that's a scary thing though, right? Because especially when you're younger, you don't really have that self-confidence and 
you re- rely a lot on authority figures around you, which tend to be your parents and your older siblings and, and other uh, adults uh, who, are, who are basically telling you that this is the prescribed path. You should do this. It's, good. it's going to be good for you. And so you really had to put up with a lot of resistance to, do, to basically break free from that. I mean, how did you do that? Man, I really don't know. I just, I guess it just felt like the thing I was supposed to be doing. And I just kept listening to that because I figured if my relationship with this higher power is okay, then it doesn't matter about all these other external relationships, right? Because I had a real feeling of, uh, of a really big faith-based feeling of like, this is what I need to be doing. This is the path for you. And I got this insane amount of guidance and, you know, validation from that. And I didn't feel like I needed the validation from other people. It just became less relevant to me in that time. Um, I definitely still struggle with that. I'm not saying that I never hear other people's judgment or criticism. I, of course I do. But the thing was, the voice inside was so much stronger that it didn't matter. You know, I was like, if I can have a relationship with this, this part of me that, you know, when I go to bed, my head, head, head hits the pillow and I'm alone, I hear that voice. I don't hear all these people telling me I'm an idiot. So I'd much rather be right with the voice that I hear when I'm alone than all these voices I hear when I go around. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love that. I, I, I've had similar experiences as, as, as well. I've also found, though, that in order to experience the, you know, the, 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 the higher power, God, whatever you want to call it, you do have to step out in faith first. It doesn't, it doesn't go the other way around. It's like, you know, you got to do something in, in faith first before I validate you know, that. It's been, uh, what was your experience as, as well? You talked about, you know, you, you did some things and then you were validated and you kept on going. What, what were some of the things that, that happened for you? Yeah. So one of the biggest stories that I have about that whole situation was I heard about a meeting in Jacksonville and I was in Sacramento. So it's a cross country. I had no way of paying for the plane ticket. I'd spent all my money on the education group. And uh, I just saw a job posting um, for a senior living facility in the, in the college town that I was living in. It was two miles away, um, biking both ways. It was early in the year, like January, February. So it was super cold in Northern California. And the only shift that they had available was 6 a.m. to noon. So I had to go and help the elderly people who were living there wake up in the morning, which is really difficult for 80 to 90 year olds. Um, and that's, it's a brutal job. You know, you have to help them go to the bathroom, you have to wash them, et cetera. And I had no idea why I was doing it. I had no idea why I was so inclined to like continue to go and bike there in the morning, wake up at four, do my miracle morning, then go to work and uh, do this job that I had no idea why I had done it. It was just really the only thing that was available at the time so I could pay for this plane ticket. And then once I got the plane ticket, I afforded the red eye after like two months of working there. I stopped in Dallas and then Charlotte and Jacksonville. And I really, I got there at like 9 a.m. The event was at noon and I really just wanted to quit. I, I, I didn't really know what this was all about. It, it was really brutal. It was a lot of work, as you can imagine. I mean, not that much sleep. And I was just uh, in a really bad place mentally. But then at that event, I actually ended up meeting Eli, who I did the 107 with and uh, JP, who I did the 12 unit with. So it was just kind of like this this kind of test almost. I felt so much like a test where it was like, let's see how much you can put up with. And if you put up with this, then I'm going to give you something. I'm going to reward you for this. And it just really did feel like very guided. Like it, it made no sense for me to meet the two partners that I ended up doing these two deals with. And it all just kind of fell into place. And it didn't feel like, like I had mastermind this in any way. I was just working, putting my head down, like you said, taking a leap of faith. And then I was rewarded for it. And it just was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I've had the same same experiences as, as well. It doesn't work the other round. It's it's not like here. Let me give you a little success to c- kind of show you you know what's possible. It's like no, you got to take the first step. You really have to. It's almost like you take a st- a step off of a cliff, you know, and all of a sudden a step appears. That I think all entrepreneurs have to go through that. Uh, you know, whether you're religious or not religious, I think the phenomenon is is universal. But it's it requires a huge step of of faith. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's support there, you know, like something magical happens. You're like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Uh, it's really cool that you went through, you went through that. And, and if you would make that experience a few times, it sounds like you have, and I have as well, 
you can take larger and larger steps of, you know, leaps of faith because you know there's someone there that's going to catch you and not let you fall. Well, maybe let you fall a little bit, but not like, you know, to Mm -hmm. your death. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty cool, man. Kyle, this has been great. How can people uh, connect with you? Yeah. So I think the best place is probably kylemarcotte.com. And there's a lot of resources on there. Um, And then Instagram, uh, my handle is kylemarcotte9. And then social media, other places, it's just Kyle Marcotte on LinkedIn and Facebook. And Marcotte is M-A-R-C-O-T-T-E. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. I don't know why we put an E at the end there. It doesn't really make any sense, but it's there. (laughs) Two T's and one E. That's fantastic. All right, you guys. So this has been great, Kyle. You You took basically every possible objection off the table. Age experience and money. And I thank you for that. I think you will have inspired hundreds, possibly thousands of people to try to do what, uh, what you have done. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, man. It's been awesome. Wow. Was that amazing or what? I mean, I don't care what objection or excuse you have right now. Like they're, they're non-existent, right? I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't have any experience. I don't have any cash. Uh, Kyle figured it out. I mean, it's amazing. He looked at every objection, looked it in the eye and says, nope, not for me. And he figured it out and he just bulldozed forward. And what I love about that, he's got grit. He's got grit. And if I'm looking at the people who have done deals and it doesn't really matter, it's interesting. It doesn't matter how much experience they have, how, many, uh, how much money they have, their demographic at all, the people who do deals, regardless if they have money or not, whether they have previous, let's say, house flipping experience or not, it doesn't matter. What they all have in common is hustle. And Kyle embodies that. And I'm so inspired and hopefully you are too. That really is the lesson right now is really, really being committed to an outcome. If you want to quit your job, you want financial freedom, whatever that means, how committed are you to that goal? What are you prepared to do? How hard are you prepared to work? And Kyle's answer was, as much as I need to, there is no other option. And I love that. Number two, he said, educate yourself. And, and that, is, that is so key because one of the reasons the brokers took him seriously on the phone, they didn't obviously know how old he was. He didn't know what he, what he looked like. And it's because he was using the right language. He had a certain amount of confidence and you only get that by educating yourself. I want to make sure you guys know our resources that we have. We have our flagship online course called The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings. And it really has everything you need to raise money, analyze deals, find the area you're working with. It's our flagship course. You can find out more about that at the Michael blank.com forward slash products. And that is a awesome resource for you. If you believe in mentoring and you want to accelerate your outcome, your goals, and then check out our mentoring program, go to the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor and schedule a free strategy session with us and see if that's right for you. So we have a variety of educational resources, uh, some that you have to invest in yourself, others that of course, like the podcast or YouTube channel are free. And we put out a lot, a lot of content. So really educate yourself. Now is a great time to do that. Number three, it's really a numbers game and it kind of gets back to hustle a little bit, but I'm surprised by how many people think that they make a couple offers and they're not accepted. Obviously, this thing doesn't work. What's funny is on the, on the single family house investing, whether you're a flipper, wholesaler, or landlord, or, you know, you know it's a numbers game. You know there's a certain number of offers you have to make to get a certain number of, of deals. And it's the same thing in apartment building. So you really got to do, it's a numbers game, both with deals and also with investors. And Kyle really pointed that out as well. Uh, the fourth point really is joint venturing. And he actually joint ventured on his first two deals. And in fact, I would say the vast majority of people who do their first set of deals joint venture with others. And this is really why we put together the Dealmaker Mastermind community. We've opened it up recently to essentially everyone. It's a super affordable $49 per month. It's really where you can network and connect with people in, a, in an online forum. 
where uh, we have actually paid advisors, people who who are really knowledgeable in this, and we do teachings as well. And so check that out. It's at uh, themichaelblank.com forward slash DMM for Dealmaker Mastermind. And check that out, and hopefully you can join us there and really start beginning joint venturing. And it's kind of a lone sport too, you know. Uh, and when you once you can get this in this in a community, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only crazy person out there. There's a whole bunch of crazy people. And you're going to start feeling at home. So check out Dealmaker Mastermind as well. And and the last thing is, and, and we talked about this at the, at the end, is, but I, I want to shine a light on this. Is it's really, you know, we develop our professional life, our financial life, uh, maybe our, you know, our, we're working on our, our physical health. But really one of the things we don't want to talk about is your spiritual health. You know, how much are you working on your on developing your spirituality? Because here's the, here's, here's the thing, you know, Many people believe that, you know, if you believe in God, it's a sign of weakness. You know, I'm I'm confident I can do whatever I believe in myself. I don't really need to believe in a higher power. And I think that's limiting. I mean, imagine there's a, this, this un, unbelievably powerful God out there and you could tap into that power. Why would you not do that? Like, that's weird. There's this giant, you know, amazing tool available to you and it's laying there on the table for you to take and you don't take it. Like, that's weird to me. I mean, I would just say there are a lot of people... Uh, that I have interviewed on this podcast, books I've read, who are unbelievably successful. And when you talk to them a little bit further, they are highly spiritual people. They actually have a relationship with with God. And, and it doesn't really matter what you call that person, what religion you are, in my opinion, but you have a relationship with this God and you start harnessing that that power that that is that is out there and, and building that relationship. And it's it's really important. So Developing that relationship with God is not only makes you a better person, in my opinion, but it also makes you a better spouse. It makes you a better father or mother. It makes you a better entrepreneur. And at the end of the, of the day, my friends, it leads to a more fulfilled life. Now, is it always going to be easy? No, not at all. Uh, but we all go through challenges. But what it does is it makes you know that there's a God out there who actually is looking out for you. And it's, uh, it gives you an unbelievable peace and calm. And this is kind of what got me through the last recession. And, you know, I had always gone to, gone to church beforehand, but I never really tested my faith. I never really needed God to show up until the last recession. And oh my gosh, did he show up? But it was only after I did a variety of things in, in pure faith. And, uh, and then I was tested some more by literally losing all of my money, uh, adding another couple hundred thousand dollars of debt on top of it, and almost lost my house. And I, through that experiment, experience, really developed an amazing sense of calm and peace. So when you know things are going on around me, I'm much more calm than I was before. And I, therefore, I can act much calmer. I can make better decisions because I'm not freaking out right now. So anyway, just a thought, you know, not a, not a sermon, just a thought. And I uh, really encourage you guys to work on your spirituality. I think it's super, super important. All right, guys, that's enough of my sermon today. You got appreciate you so much. Catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.